We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. This talk was recorded at UniChurch on the campus of UNSW, which was attended primarily by undergraduate and postgraduate students who lived on campus or in the suburbs surrounding the university. It's found in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 38. If you have a New International Version Bible, it will be on page 77 of the back section. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Naor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Apaxedad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Number three of Luke's Gospel we come to one of the great gems, one of the great pearls in the whole New Testament, but the trouble is we shoot past it at such speed, so eager are we to get into the 78 names that follow, that we miss it. And tonight I want us to uh, think about that pearl that occurs there in verses 21 and 22 of the baptism of Jesus 
But rather than spend our time actually looking at those words, what I want to do is to try and look at the, uh, the background and the lighting of the whole scriptures against which such a pearl stands out in its brilliance. That if you don't have the whole background properly, properly set and if you do not have the lighting falling on it properly, you miss the, the real brilliance that lies in those couple of verses. And you shoot past them and say, well, there they are. Yes, that's what happened at Jesus' baptism. But when you understand the Old Testament aright, when you perceive all that is going on behind the scenes, so to speak, then when that voice from heaven comes, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased, then all that which excites you as a Bible believer, then all of you who know the Old Testament and love the Lord God will be jumping up and down and singing the hymns that Colin has put us through this evening with joy and vigour, as indeed we have. Now then, there are three concepts in the Old Testament that I want us to, to look at first, all of which play a part in this baptismal scene. They are the Son of God and the Servant of God and the Spirit of God. And of course I'm going to have to be, have to be selective to uh, cover what the Old Testament says about those things in one sermon, let alone in three sermons, and still get on to the baptism. It's not us the usual view of the Bible that all men are the sons of God. For man is the creation of God, not his offspring. However, in Genesis 5 we find that when Adam has a son called Seth, that Seth was born in the image of Adam. And Adam, of course, is created in the image of God. And so our author finishes the genealogy in chapter 3, the genealogy of Jesus, by talking about the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. For in some sense, Adam was God's son, for Adam had what the sons of God have, the ownership of the world. Adam was the heir of God, the ruler of God's world under God's authority. Yet the more usual usage of the Son of God idea in the Old Testament is that of a Messiah. The Messiah is the anointed one, is the Christ, and he is the Son of God. Psalm 2, in particular, is the indication that the ruler of God's world will be the king of Israel. Now there are a whole series of synonyms used for the king of Israel. He sits in David's throne and so he is the son of David. The Hebrew word, with my broad Australian accent, is Messiah. It's very anglicised in that form. The Greek word is Christ. Both words mean the anointed one. Because in the coronation of kings and queens down through centuries has been the practice of anointing with oil. I remember, unlike many of you, the coronation of our most gracious sovereign lady, Queen Elizabeth II. I am willing to admit that I remember it too. And I remember it because I was a very, very small child at the time. <laughs> and I can recall that they described for us in all the gory details all the things that would happen in the process of the coronation 
That was a long and involved service, but they gave us all the details. And one point, they, I remember they tell, told us that they were going to pour a vial of oil over her head. And I couldn't quite grasp what it would be like to see her all in her regalia with this huge lump of sump oil pouring down her head and all over her dress. It didn't quite seem to make sense to me. But there, even in the coronation of our gracious sovereign lady, Queen Elizabeth II, we find the idea of the anointing as being the signification of the one set by God to rule the land. The anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the seated on the David's throne person, is all the one and the same person. Now turn with me to Psalm 2, if you would be so kind. Psalm 2. And we see there that it is a psalm about the Messiah, about the Anointed One. It's one of the most important psalms concerning the Messiah, the Anointed One. The kings of the earth, you see, they are ruling, they are gathering together against the Lord and against his Anointed One. In my NIV, that's actually put into, into uh, capital letters so as to draw attention to the significance of the title. The Messiah is the Hebrew word that is there in the text and some of your English translations will convey that and put it as the Messiah. You could equally translate it the Christ, his Christ. The drift of the psalm runs like this. The nations and the people oppose God and his Messiah in verse 1 to 3. There's a revolution, there's a coup taking place. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. But in verses 4 to 5, we find 4 to 6, we find that God has thwarted their plans. The opposition to God and his Messiah is quite thwarted because God has appointed his king in Zion, in, in Jerusalem, in the, in the great temple. His king is appointed there. And it is through his Messiah that the great plans and purposes of the nations in opposition to God will be thwarted. Then in verse 7, the psalm takes a change in its, in its format. For suddenly the king speaks. The king, the Messiah, gives testimony and he declares what the God has said to him. I will proclaim the decrees of the Lord, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. The Messiah is declared by God to be his son. Here is a crucial understanding of the nature of what it is to be the son of God. It is to be the Messiah whom God has put into the world to thwart the plans of opposition, whom God has placed and installed as king in Jerusalem and against whom the nations, while they'll rant and rage, will not have victory because God gives to his son a son's inheritance. Verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery. To what does, what does give God give to his son? He gives him the world. He will rule and govern and own the nations. He is not just the king of Israel, but as the king of Israel, he becomes the king of the whole world and all the nations, those who oppose him, he will be able to destroy like a, a lump of iron going straight through a clay pot. He'll smash them to pieces. And so the psalm ends with a little warning to the nations. Watch out. The warning is put in those crude terms. Kiss the sun. 
lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. If that is who the Son of God is, if the King of Israel is the King of all the world, then make sure you're right with the King of Israel lest he destroy you. Here is Psalm 2, the Psalm of the Messiah who identifies the Son of God as the ruler of the world. The second Old Testament concept is that of the servant of God. All the universe serves God and everybody within it should. Yet within Isaiah chapters 42 to 53, there is a particular servant of God. If you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42, the lesson that we read at our Old Testament lesson this evening. Chapter 42 of Isaiah. As you can see in the outline notes in front of you, there, are a, there is a series of songs concerning this servant of God. We won't be reading them all, we've just read the first one, and the last one is one of the most, one of the most uh, famous passages in the whole Old Testament. Each of them tells us more about this servant of God. But who is the servant? His name is never given. He could be Israel, he could be the Messiah. He could be the prophet Isaiah himself or another prophet. He could be all of those. Who is it? Who is this servant of God? Chapter 42 verse 1 tells us that he is the one in whom God finds delight. He is the one who is the chosen, the elect person of God. God's beloved person. And God's delight in him is such that he places his spirit in him and he will, bring the justice, he will bring justice to the nations through his servant. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I, I delight. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the nations. God's spirit resides in this one, and his ministry and mission is to bring justice to the nations. So in verse 4, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. Here is the bringer of justice to the whole world. Yet how does he bring the justice of God to all the world? But by gentleness and by faithfulness. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. Here is a servant of God, specially appointed by God, specially chosen by God, who is given the spirit of God to bring justice to the ends of the earth. But the way in which he does it is by being very gentle, is by being faithful to God. That is faithfulness will lead him to death and to appalling suffering is not spelled out in Isaiah chapter 42. But by the time we reach the last of the songs of the servant in Isaiah chapter 53, he can be rightly called not just the servant of God, but the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, as our hymn writer will put it. 
the man of sorrows, what a name. That is the name he bears, for his victory lies in terrible suffering and in sacrificial death, for he will take upon himself the sins of the people, will be numbered with the transgressors and executed on their behalf. The third of the Old Testament concepts I would draw to your attention tonight is that of the Spirit of God. Now the Spirit of God is all through the Old Testament. You find him in creation in chapter uh, 1 verse 2 of Genesis where he hovers over the waters. Yet the Spirit has a particular role in bringing forth the purposes of God, especially in association with several people. The Spirit is the anointing of God upon the Messiah. Turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 11. For there is again a very famous passage there of the Messiah, of the Christ, of the King. Who can tell me what was the name of uh, David's father? Jesse, right? Jesse's family and David's throne was to be cut off and destroyed. The kings were, were chopped down like a tree. And yet the promise of God was that David's son would always sit on David's throne. That was a great conundrum and problem to the prophets. How could there always be David's son sitting on David's throne and at the same time for David's, David's uh, tree to be chopped down as it was by the firstly the division of the kingdoms and then by the destruction of the ten northern tribes and then by the destruction of the southern tribes by the Babylonians? How could it all happen? Well, as a shoot will come out of a tree stump, so though the tree of Israel be chopped down, a shoot will come up again out of the stump of Jesse. That shoot will be the Messiah, for he will take the role of the king. I read Isaiah chapter 11 and the first say nine verses, and it'll be a very famous passage for you, I'm sure. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with, his, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will lie down, will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Here is the Messiah. And what does the Messiah do but bring in a time of universal justice and righteousness, bring in a new age, a new world order, quite different to the world order now. For even the animals of venom and, and, and attack will turn into docility, will be just calm and lying playfully together. No harm will come because righteousness and justice will rule the world. The king will bring this in 
the king of Israel, the king out of the family of Jesse, will bring it in. But notice what he said about this king in verse 2. It is the spirit of the Lord that rests on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and of power, of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The spirit of God is the anointing of the Messiah, is, is that which brings the Messiah to do his work. He does it by faithfulness again. He does it by righteousness and justice, but he does it by the power of the Spirit of God. Likewise, in Isaiah chapter 42, the servant of whom we have already spoken and looked, he comes, he also brings justice for all the ends of the earth. He also comes fighting the battle with faithfulness, righteousness, gentleness, but he too is one upon whom the Spirit of God is poured. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one whom I delight. I will put my Spirit on him. He too exercises his ministry by the power of God's Spirit. Little wonder that some men could see that the servant of Isaiah 42 and the Messiah of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 11 were one and the same person. Though none could tolerate the idea that the servant of Isaiah 53 could be the Messiah as well. But the Spirit guides many people. The prophet himself in Isaiah 61 has the Spirit laid upon him so that he proclaims the new age of God. Isaiah 61, a passage that Jesus takes to apply to himself later on in Luke's Gospel. In about two or three weeks' time we'll see this. Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. There's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The Messiah. The Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion. It is a very important passage, Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3, or indeed the chapter. Very important because so many of the prophecies of the New Testament, so many of the statements of the New Testament take up those very words. For example, though it is completely off the track of tonight, when you come to the Beatitudes and it says, Blessed are all who mourn, for they shall be comforted, it does not mean that Christians should go to lots of funerals. It always worried me as to why it is that we should be always seeking funerals out. Maybe that's why churches conduct them, so that clergymen can be particularly comforted and blessed. Well, if it's not referring to funerals, if it's not referring to the grieving over your loved ones who have died, to what does it mean when it says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted? It means Isaiah 61. That's what it means. For the Spirit is upon me to bring comfort to those who mourn for those who grieve in Zion. It's addressed to the situation of those who long that the righteous kingdom of God be set up and who are dissatisfied with living in slavery in Babylon and long to get back to Jerusalem to build the city of God, to establish the kingdom of God and to have God's Messiah ruling there. And what our prophet is saying here is 
I've been appointed to proclaim that that is about to take place. I've been appointed by God's Spirit to declare the new age, the great age of forgiveness, the new and great age when God's people who long for the kingdom of God will get what they long for, God ruling in Zion, when those who are captives will be released, when those who are poor will hear the great news of the victory of God. It is the Spirit who brings in this great new age and the proclamation of it. And so it's not surprising that the, the Old Testament also teaches that the Spirit of God will work in all the people in the new age. Turn with me to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. That's just towards the New Testament a little bit, a couple of books over. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, if you can find it, then you'll hit Ezekiel. 36. And I pick up from verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. You might remember as we went through Galatians recently, the concept that we're no longer under the law, but we now live under the Spirit who moves us to do the very things that the law says to do. And you see it's prophesied in the Old Testament that in the new age, God is going to not only wash us clean, but put a, a new spirit within us, his spirit within us, with all the people of the new age, they will receive the Spirit of God to move them to obedience to the law, to move them to holiness from the heart will come their true expression of godliness. Or turn with me to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, just before Amos and after Hosea. Joel 2. When I was a kid in Sunday school, you used to sing, hear the pennies dropping, but in this church, you just hear the paper rattling. But I think it comes at a different point in the service. Joel chapter 2. If desperate, remember there's a table of contents in the front of the Bible. If you're embarrassed about the person beside you, you'll still get there faster than they will by thumbing. And there's no prize to the speedy anyway. Joel 2. Verse 28, And afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. The great day of judgment comes. 
sun turned to blood and to darkness, the moon to blood and all the rest of it. Dreadful day of judgment of God. But all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved in that great day of judgment. But more than they will be saved, they will have God's spirit poured out upon them. They will be flooded with with the spirit of God so that the things that were just the domain of the prophets before, prophesying, just the domain of the visionary, the seer, seeing visions, now become the domain of all God's people, the men and the women. They will all share together in the spirit of God poured out. And so we look forward, we look forward to the new age that the Messiah brings, the new age of the servant of God, both of whom are men under the spirit of God, bringing justice to the ends of the earth, justice to the people, bringing all the longings that the prophet foretold. And it will come to all the people, for they will all share in the spirit of God. The Old Testament looks forward to the dawning of the new age. Yet it is incomplete. It is unhappy, for it always looks forward. It has never arrived. John the Baptist announces the coming of the new age. That is his ministry. He seeks to prepare people for the coming of the kingdom of God, the coming of the age of the Spirit, the coming of the Messiah. For God is about to visit his people to rescue them and to save them and to judge them, condemn So John calls on the people to repent in order to be ready. This is the right preparation. Turn back to God. Seek his forgiveness. Turn back and become true Israelites, prepared to meet your God as he comes in salvation and in judgment. But John is not bringing in the new age. He is only the forerunner of the new age. So when in chapter 3 of Luke's Gospel in verse 15 the people were looking and wondering in their hearts if John would be the Messiah, the Christ, John denies it and says, no, I'm not that one. I am the one who points to yet another. John's written up in the New Testament but he actually lived in the Old Testament. He is the last page of the Old Testament. It just happens to be recorded in the New Testament because John is still one who's pointing to somebody else and saying, he is yet to come. The age is about to come, but it's yet to come. The age is coming. The Messiah is on his way. Judgment and salvation. I baptise you with water, but he who is coming, he will baptise you with the Spirit. He is mightier than I am. He is worthier than I am. He will come and baptise you with the Spirit and with fire, picking up the kind of things that you find in Joel 2 or you can find it in Isaiah 4 or many other places. But the coming age is an age of the Spirit of God and of the fire of judgment. So John points to another figure. The other figure who has been dominating the early chapters of Luke's Gospel Jesus. Already in Luke's Gospel we have been warned to expect a lot from the man Jesus. When he was conceived in his mother Mary, 
the angel made a great announcement concerning him back in chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel, verse 32. Luke 1, 32. The child that you're going to have, the baby, who you call Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. See, what's he going to be called? The Son of God, the Son of the Most High. What does that mean? It means he's going to be called the Messiah. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. That's where the Messiah sits. That's where the Christ is. That's where the king is. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, which is a synonym for Israel. He will rule over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never end. Mary asks some questions about it. And in verse 35 the angel said, the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Mary's child, because of the Holy Spirit, will be called the Son of God. He will be the King of Psalm 2. How big is the King's kingdom in Psalm 2? The ends of the earth. That is where he's going to reign over all the nations, even those that are anti-God, he is going to reign. And it's promised of the babe even at conception. And at his birth in chapter 2, we find an angel speaking to the shepherds out in the fields. Chapter 2, verse 10. Do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people today in the town of David a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Who was the saviour that was born in Bethlehem? The Messiah, the King, the Lord. At the announcement of his birth, he is declared by the angel of God to be the Messiah. And then in the temple, we get further announcements that lift our expectations about Jesus. For we find the old man Simeon in chapter 2. Simeon has been promised that he will not die until he sees the Messiah. When he sees the baby Jesus coming to the temple to be presented, he takes him up in his arms and he says, Lord, now you have fulfilled your promise to me. Let me depart in peace. For I have seen the salvation that you have prepared for all the nations. And another old prophetess, Anna, when she saw the baby Jesus, she went amongst all those people who were looking for the new age, telling them about the child whom she had saw, seen. And later when Jesus is 12, we find that he is conscious of his special unique relationship with God. For he says, when his, father, his parents found him, verse 49 of chapter 2 of Luke, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Already in the Gospel of Luke, we have great expectations about Jesus and who he is. And now in chapter 3, he comes to John for baptism. And as he identifies himself with the Baptist movement, as he prayed the Spirit of the Lord descended upon him. 
physically and visibly in the form of a dove, the Spirit descended upon this one. Here is his public anointing. Here is his public declaration of being the Messiah. He is the one upon whom God's Spirit is poured. For centuries, they have been looking for the age of the Spirit. Now John says one is going to come who will baptise you with the Spirit. He'll pour out the Spirit on you. And now we see one upon whom the Spirit descends. The dove's wings were not the only things fluttering that day out in the wilderness. Every truly Jewish heart would have been fluttering in excitement at that moment. The Spirit of God coming upon one, anointing him, and in case you missed the message, the voice of God comes. You are my son, whom I love. The voice of God comes with the psalm of Psalm 2 on his lips, saying, you are my son. You, Jesus, are my son. Ask of me and I will give you the nations. You will be able to smash through them like iron bar through clay pots. You are my son. The Spirit descended upon the Son of God and in his anointment he is declared to be the Messiah of God. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And so the voice identifies Jesus as not only the son of God, but also the servant of God, the one in whom he is pleased, his chosen one in whom he delights, to whom he gives his spirit that he might bring justice to the ends of the earth, that he might bring in the new world order by serving the Lord in gentleness and faithfulness and righteousness all the days of his life. The one upon whom God places his spirit. And then we read on to the end of chapter 3 with this long genealogy of the names of the ancestors of Jesus. But it reinforces the very thing that has just been said in the baptism. For of which family does Jesus come? But from the family of David. Within the people of Abraham. As a descendant of Adam, who also was, the Son of God. There are only two who ultimately are the Son of God in that list, Adam and Jesus. There were two great kings in the list, David and Jesus. The people of God are about to start all over again. And the God's son who is going to bring it about was a real man who had ancestors and who had a family tree that you could check out through some many, many generations. He was not like a demigod of the Greek 
pantheon who, who would be dropped out, godlike and not man. This was a man who came in human history with an ancestry as you and I have an ancestry. But this one had a special ancestry because this one was indeed the special man, the son of God. Yet that's not all we see in his baptism. For those of us with eyes to see, he is being baptised into his death. Luke hasn't made much of it yet, but he will. Because you're supposed to have seen it already, though most of us haven't. For the baptism not only declares who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, that he is the servant of God, inspired by the Spirit of God to do those things, it not only declares who he is, but it also declares what he has come to do. For the Son of God and the, and the servant of God come to bring justice to the world, come to bring the new age of righteousness, come to bring the new age of the Spirit of God. Yet how will they conduct their ministries? What will they do to bring about this new age? They will do it in gentleness and faithfulness. And they'll be given the world as a gift from God. But what will they do? And how will they do it? How will they break the nations into pieces? How will they conquer the world? How will they bring a new order into life? How will they pour the spirit into the hearts of people? The servant of God of Isaiah 42 is the same servant of God of Isaiah 53. That the way in which the servant brings about God's will is by living in obedience to him even at the hands of sinful people even at the hands of dying as the sacrifice of God for the sins of the whole world. For all we like sheep have gone astray, we've all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And as he is led like a lamb to the slaughter, as he is killed, on behalf of others so God opens up for us forgiveness and pardon a clean sheet so we'll be washed clean to start all over again what does he do he suffers and dies sacrificially So if we see who Jesus is properly we can anticipate what is going to happen after the baptism and so what is left well the rest of the gospel you don't need to read really if you've grasped it properly at this point it's all there the life the persecution the suffering the death an ultimate vindication of Jesus in resurrection is inevitable given the baptism of Jesus. 
for that is the way that he is to save and rule the world. But what for us? He is the Saviour who is the Lord. He is the one who gives us his spirit. But what does it mean for you and I? Well, there's two things it can mean. The first is whether he is our saviour and Lord. Whether we have accepted his baptism for us. That he is the man of sorrows for us and that he is the Lord and ruler of us. For if we come into his kingdom, then we come to the forgiveness, to the washing clean that he has given to those who call upon his name, that we will be spared of the dreadful judgment of God and live in pardon and peace and forgiveness. For the Lord is our Lord, the Son of God, is our Messiah. The servant of God is the sacrifice for my sins. So I am pardoned. So I am a Christ person, a Christian. And secondly, if I am that, if I am a Christ person, if I am a follower of Jesus, who is the Christ? then how far do I want his kingdom to extend? How far do I expect to see his rule to extend? The promise of the psalm is to the ends of the earth. Ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance. The world is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and everything within it. All the nations are his nations. They are his by right for he created them. His by right, for he died for them. It is God's world and the message of justice and forgiveness. The experience of the Spirit of God is not for one people, not for one group, but open to all who will hear the name of Jesus and profess him to be their Lord, their Saviour. And so if he is my Lord and my Saviour, it is because I believe he is the Lord and the Saviour. And if I believe he is the Lord and the Saviour, then I must want him to be your Lord and your Saviour. You cannot be committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ for your own salvation without at the same time being committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ for the salvation of all mankind. For it is one and the same gospel message. He is the king, not only of me, for my what a tiny kingdom that would be. He is the king of all the nations everywhere. And so we're to be involved in the proclamation and the conquest of the nations, not with sword and with iron bar, but with the gospel and prayer and the powerful name of Jesus who brings people to himself from every tribe and every language. We see it here because we live in cosmopolitan eastern suburbs, don't we? There's all kinds of languages that you can speak. There's Strine that I can speak 
and there's things that you can speak. We have people here who speak French and Russian, who speak Mandarin and Cantonese. We have friends here who speak Greek. We have friends who can speak Italian. We have friends who can, so I'm just looking around to see who else I can see in the place. There's all kinds of languages that I can just spot around about us. And there are many more. For God's kingdom is not limited to one group of people or another. And we have friends all over the world. Anna has just come back to us from Benin. Merida came and spent a few months up in Taiwan. Jenny spent some months over in South America, in Peru and Colombia. Our friends, the Cauteries, are in India at the moment. We've had friends go from here back to their home countries in Malaysia and Singapore and Hong Kong, all of them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've seen Helen labor for a couple of years in the Sudan. There is no limits to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. If he is my Lord, because I acknowledge he is the Lord, and if he is the Lord, then he is the Lord of all the nations. And so my commitment to him as my own saviour must lead me to the commitment to him as the saviour of all the nations and I must pray, and I must give, and I must go to bring the conquest of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Do you want to ask questions or make comments about what is being said tonight or about the passage? Yeah. A point is raised about the line of Jesus and his ancestry through Mary or through Joseph and how it happens by inheritance and the like. And if you compare the genealogy of Matthew and the genealogy of, uh, of Luke's gospel, you can have a happy hunting ground for many hours of trying to sort the two together. I'd refer you to the New Bible Dictionary article that discusses, it's written by F.F. F. Bruce, on uh, genealogy of Jesus. There's two articles, one on genealogy generally, which is very interesting because you and I don't think genealogically by and large. Uh, and then there's a second article on the genealogy of Jesus by F.F. F. Bruce which talks about the difficulty of resolution of the two and of the way in which Jesus' family can be traced uh, legally through uh, Joseph and in fact through Mary and uh, the way in which you try and resolve those. There are several different theories and ways of approaching the subject. Uh, I'm avoiding that issue under the advice of Paul to Timothy who warns against endless speculations about genealogies. But I've told you where the references are and I've read them and enjoyed them and so you can too. David raises the question about how do we then in, uh, apply the Joel 2 passage to us today about dreaming dreams and seeing visions and all that kind of thing. Uh, Joel 2 is quoted in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. You remember the disciples, uh, who are the apostles, no, the disciples, 120 of them, um, some of them are speaking in tongues and people gather around and say they're drunk, to which Peter says, no, they're not drunk, it's too early in the morning to be drunk, which is an interesting idea. It's too early in the morning to be drunk, but shows they had uh, trading hours back in the pubs then, didn't it? It's too, couldn't have had Mr. Rand in government. Too early in the morning to, uh, to be drunk. But what you hear now is Joel chapter 2. 
And Peter says, this is the last days, this is the day of judgment, this is the day of salvation. You hear it now, that the Spirit of God has been poured out on his people. Now, Joel chapter 2 talks about the moon turning to blood and the sun falling from its place. But that didn't happen in Peter's day. Yet Peter could say, it is happening today. Look at you, it's happening now. Why? Because he wasn't such a, a, a literalist as to think that that's what Joel meant. They are the normal figure of speech in the Old Testament of which you can find many examples of judgment. It's figurative, poetic language of judgment. Likewise, the visions and the prophesying is figurative language of the work of the Spirit. You do not have to see a vision in order to know that you've received the Spirit of God, nor prophesy in order to know that you've seen the Spirit of God. They are just the figurative signs of it. And so instead of just being one little group in Israel who has special prophetic out, a special spiritual outpouring, now all God's people will share the Spirit of God. But the thing that the Spirit of God will bring in all the people is the Ezekiel passage. He'll place it in us, the Spirit, to make us want to obey the law of God. That is the work of the Spirit of God in the non-poetic language. You'll see it even if you look at your English Bibles, that the uh, Joel reference is written in, in, uh, in verse form and the Ezekiel uh, passage is written in, uh, in prose form. Right. And so to apply the literal aspects of Joel to today is to uh, misunderstand the nature of the literature you're dealing with. Thanks, David. Yes, Alan? Yes, yes. Uh, Alan has got a loud voice. Did you hear him up there? Good. Alan, did you hear him? Good. That's a relief. Oh, no, the tape people didn't hear. I'm sorry. Yes. Um, in Psalm 2, just for you people in tape land, in Psalm 2, the uh, reference is, today uh, you, will be, you are my son. Now, in what sense did he become today become God's son? Because isn't he always God's son? Yes. You and I hear the word, the son of God, or the phrase son of God, and we think in what is called ontological terms. That is, in terms of the being of God. And we think that's a Trinitarian statement. That's a statement about the nature of Jesus as being God the son. But the phrase son of God can be applied to you and I if we're Christians, can't we? And we're not God the Son. The phrase doesn't always mean that. Well then, what does it mean? It is a designation of the Messiah. It is the appointment of the Messiah. And that's why it happens today. Now, of course, ultimately, there is only one person who is fit to be the Messianic Son of God. And that is the one who for all eternity was God the Son. That is the only person who is fit for it. It is because in all eternity he is God the Son that he becomes the Son of God. But he becomes the Son of God in his baptism, in his anointment of the, by the Holy Spirit for the task of the Messiah. But that's no comment as to him being adopted as God's Son at that point. 
for he's always been God's son eternally in his ontological his being right? it's just talking about his messianic role now at what point does he become the Messiah well at his baptism or again at his uh, presentation in the temple or again at his birth or again at his conception I mean in one it, it, it's a bit arbitrary to try and time God and say you know is he is he now is he now is he not it's not Right? No one really wants to do that except the heretics of the early centuries called adoptionists who wanted to say that Jesus was a normal man and then suddenly at one point, usually the baptism, Jesus adopts him to become his son. God, rather the father, adopts him to become the son. Now that, that of course, is not, that, that's not what's being on about at all. He's anointed, he's appointed to be the Messiah. And here is one of the great classic points at which you see his appointment declared by God. But he is appointed as the Messiah because he's the only one truly fitted or suited for it. Because from all eternity he always was the Son of God in that much grander term. Get the gist of what I'm saying? Um, Our brother raises the question, we're told to go out and to spread the news of Jesus Christ to all the world, but isn't it true that the Holy Spirit takes the blindness from people's eyes? And is there some kind of apparent contradiction through that? It, it, may, uh, it, it may seem so and therefore be apparent, but no, there is no contradiction because the way in which God chooses to work, the way he chooses to work, is through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's Spirit can open the binds and blind eyes of, of any person anywhere. But faith comes from hearing the Word of God. And so God chooses to use His Word to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ and therefore to new life. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.